From 103.7 WPVMLP in Asheville, it's the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. I'm Katherine Campbell. And I'm Jonathan Ammons. And this one goes out to my mother, who is currently in the hospital recovering from a nasty fall. Get well soon, Mom. We love you. Here's Sun Kill Moon. I can live with the sky falling out from above I can live with your scorn, your sourness, your smug I can live growing old alone if push comes to shove But I can't live without my mother's love I can live flying around at an impossible pace I can that's falling on this place I can live with anything you got To throw in my face But I can't live without my mother's embrace My mother is 75 She's the closest friend I have in my life Take her from me I'll break down and ball and wither away like oak leaves in the fall. You can be cruel all you want, talk bad on my brother, shoot me full of holes and I won't be bothered. Judge me for my ways and my slew of ex-lovers, but don't ever dare say a bad word. When she's gone, I'll miss all slow, easy walks, playing scrabble the chimes of the grandfather clock. I'll even miss the times that we fought, but mostly I'll miss being able to call her and talk. I can live without watching the classical fights. I can lover beside me at night I can live without what you might call a charmed life but I can't live without my mother providing her life my mother is 75 one day she won't be here to hear me cry when the day
It's so commonly known, it's become a stereotype. The kitchen is a home for misfits. But why? And how did it become this way? I mean, sure, we all know that it's an industry where anyone with a checkered past could get a job. But how did it become a den for the cast-offs of society? Well, chef and writer Trisha Costas thinks she might have an answer, but she blames her mother. Chef Liz bursts through the kitchen like the blast of hot air that slams into me whenever I open the doors to our thermonuclear convection oven. Her cyclonic flight past stovetops, ovens, and grills leaves us all breathless as we await the scolding we will undoubtedly receive. This sauce is too thin. This sauce is too thick. This omelet is too brown. This omelet is raw. Your apron is filthy. Where is your apron? I may as well be working for my mother. After stumbling out of college with a nasty drug and alcohol habit, I gleefully discovered the kitchen to be a hotbed of miscreants and adrenaline junkies just like myself. It is clear now that spending years and pots full of money on psychotherapy for my many issues was unnecessary. After 26 years in the industry, every dysfunctional family problem I've ever needed to address has been unveiled to me amid stainless steel and smoldering saucepans. Looking to create the parent-child relationship? Secure a position as a sous chef. Probing the origins and consequences of a f***ed up family? Go be a line cook. Hoping to understand the long-term effects of childhood mental abuse? Pastry chef is the position for you. I've done them all, and while I'm no closer to inner peace, I have gained some valuable insights, with the added perks of being able to cook a perfect roast chicken and bake a killer rhubarb pie. I have never worked in any other profession, so I may be tilting at windmills when I say, no other career affords such Freudian benefits. I've recreated the parent-child relationship in every kitchen I've worked. Chef Imelda, a grand dame of Hope Cuisine in 80s Seattle galvanized her humble minions with an exquisite combination of praise of any kind and a fondness for setting culinary standards that Martha Stewart herself would need three clones to help her accomplish. Chef Moldy, as we affectionately called her, employed mental torture tactics that would make the boys at Gitmo jealous. Sleep deprivation, starvation, physical exploitation, and verbal abuse were de rigueur during our hellish 14-hour days. In the singular event that she found something acceptable, a pasty-faced cook's pallor would suddenly brighten, and hope would course through those veins like chemo in a stage 4 cancer patient. Maybe Chef will be proud of me now! And yet, as if to spotlight the bipolar nature of the kitchen, an inexplicable phenomenon occurred every day, as it does in many kitchens everywhere. The persecuted prep cooks would seize the rare opportunity offered by the chef to exercise what little creative ideas still burned in their warped psyches and prepare for what is known as family meal. Imagine a kind of survivor meets top chef scenario, wherein the overworked and weary cook has to put together a meal for all the staff and the chef that will please the palates of the foodie creme de la creme and prove that the cook has the skills to remain employed. Staff gathers around a table before service begins and frantically devours pasta or three-day-old reheated roast chicken like some twisted version of the Von Trapp family. 
And at the head of the table, Moldy would reign a little less tyrannically than in the trenches. With her brood strewn about her, one could almost see her soft underbelly. Many commercial kitchens operate under a, we're pretty sure this isn't legal, special ops approach. I was called to the cook's life in part because the kitchen mirrors my childhood experience of being educated in the Catholic school system circa 1962. Sister Loretta Ann ran her eighth grade classroom like Mussolini in a habit, and if you put her behind a six-burner range with Gordon Ramsay today, it would be his Rocky Mountain oysters sizzling in her pan. Somehow, I naively thought working for women in the kitchen would be like having an extended easy-bake oven party with the carpenters, bless the beasts and the children, wafting from the boombox. I have not met the Julia Child of the professional kitchen. But I've worked with many women who were clearly the experimental hybrid clones of Ina Garten and the monster from Cloverfield. The female chef can inspire and motivate her kids with a firm but empathetic style. She can celebrate successes and quietly correct mistakes, like Shirley Partridge did with Keith and Lori. Male chefs are infinitely easier to please. As a young female in an all-male kitchen, I was pampered in ways I feared I'd be expected to repay in a dark, musty basement on the baker's butcher block table during the lull between lunch and dinner. But most of the men I worked under were kindly father figures rather than lechers. I have probably always been drawn to female-run kitchens because my primary relationship with my father was not my main problem. But the other one, well, I'm still working that one out. After a few decades in this field, I have achieved some level of seniority. I now have a crew I can shape and mold to be future culinary superstars. I now blow through my kitchen, invoking Chef Liz while I gesture theatrically at the sauce-spattered walls and greasy floors. I am not ashamed to admit that I frequently slip into no-wire-hangers mode and have to fight the urge to use my spatula on the backs of heads like Sister Loretta Ann used her yardstick. It might be my greatest contribution to trigger the transference process free of charge right there in the workplace. But transference and psychotherapy, when properly managed, should bring resolution and closure. In the kitchen, closure comes at 2 a.m. when the last ungrateful customer leaves, and you finally get to have that complimentary drink at the bar with the people you now think of as family. That was Barbie Angel reading Trisha Costas' Freud in the Kitchen. You can find it in all of our previous stories on our website, dirty-spoon.com. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is on the air here at WPBM because of our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Celebrating 40 years as Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant and founded in 1979, The Marketplace Restaurant has always had the mission of bringing Asheville the best the region has to offer from our own backyard, farmed by our neighbors. Thank you. 
Travis Milton is a fascinating person to talk to. Widely regarded as an authority on Appalachian food and culture, he became somewhat of an icon of Appalachian cooking as the chef of restaurants Large, Comfort, and Parkside, which made it all the more surprising when he abruptly stepped away from opening three restaurants around Bristol, Virginia in 2018, citing personal reasons. When he came back, he was a changed man. Gone was the long beard and trucker cap, and in their place, Hawaiian shirts, Air Jordans, and a Golden Girls tattoo designed to look like Mount Rushmore scrawled across his chest. He's since opened Nice Wonder Farm and Vineyard in Bristol, where he continues to extol the virtues of Appalachian culture. John caught up with him recently at the food festival Chow Chow here in Asheville this fall. Here's their conversation. But what do you feel like you don't ever get to talk about when you talk to press? I don't know. I mean, like, it's... I mean, typically, like, everybody wants me to talk about heirloom seeds and um, economic development in Appalachia and a lot of the nuts and bolts of stuff that I do. And uh, and to be honest, like, that's kind of why, like, I, I, I've kind of took, I took about a year off from doing, like, a lot of media because I felt like my brand was really taking over who I was. Like, I... If, if you look at pictures of me it from was like, starting to dictate your yeah, actions 100%. yeah 100% if you look at pictures of me from like 5 6 years ago you know I've got a beard like ZZ top and I'm wearing a Virginia's for lovers hat in every single picture and I have a glass of whiskey and a plaid Wrangler shirt and now if you look at me now like I'm like this is the way I typically would have dressed but like I felt like being an Appalachian chef I had to fit into this mold and you know, wear a trucker cap all the time and right. uh, Waylon Jennings t-shirt, which don't get me wrong, I still love Waylon Jennings, but um, <laughs> but I also like, I freaking, I collect, I collect Jordans, like I love sneakers, I love like weird baby making 90s R&B, like Keith Sweat <laughs> and um, I don't know, it just, it just felt like I was losing like a lot of myself in what I, I kind of was being dictated to like with, with PR and everything of like, you know, this is the way you need to look is who you need to talk to this is what you need to do and yeah um, I mean don't get me wrong like it's kind of playing the game you know and, and you got to do that to an extent but I got sick of it and decided screw it like I'm going to wear my Hawaiian shirts and yeah. I'm going to wear my sneakers every a different pair every day and how did that impact what you do in the kitchen um a lot because uh, that was that was, I mean, that was another thing uh, being known as an Appalachian chef or being known as like one of the, the people foremost in that it's it kind of puts you in a box of like I feel like everything I have to do has to you know be derivative or, or involved with you know heritage Appalachian food and you know I worked in San Francisco I worked for Chris Cosentino I worked at WD50 you know I, I've done a whole lot of stuff that doesn't involve pole beans right um, and there's there's a lot of parts of me that, that still do those things but you know it gets into these 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 discussions about uh, what is food in the South and and what is what is derivative and what is uh, uh, appropriative and what is authentic and I've really hated the term authentic and one of the things I preach about with Appalachian food is uh, authenticity is kind of like a, a snapshot it's like a Polaroid it doesn't change uh, but food in the South has had to change constantly based off of you know your ethnicity, where you lived at, what your economic you know, conditions were, what, what, what kind of mountains are around you. I mean, it was all based off of creativity. and uh, So it's been an ever-evolving thing, and I don't understand 
um, how some portions of the food community can get so uh, almost closed-minded on what a dish should be and what it has to be based off of their their own personal experience and I really kind of once I started you know finding myself it's like Stella got a groove back kind of shit. <laughs> <laughs> although I didn't go I didn't go to the, the freaking beach and uh, with Angela Bassett I uh, I just got to the point where like it, it drove me nuts like I had a I had a huge like mental breakdown uh, started seeing a shrink like everything like all the all the the typical like chef self-care things that I think we're all realizing now yeah and uh, at that point I was like you know I need to quit putting myself into these into these cookie cutter kind of boxes that you know it's 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 not that it's not that convenient and I need to you know be me and and to be honest like my food has improved a ton and in my opinion and I'm getting to do things that I find fun and I'm not just doing it because it's what's expected of me I'm doing I'm literally cooking what I want and that's awesome and you know a lot of it is you know still within the Appalachian vernacular but you know I've, I've got a pizza place I've got all kinds of stuff um, going on but uh, yeah it was it's actually very freeing and, and to be honest like I, I think I'm a lot happier in the kitchen now than I ever was yeah yeah I mean it sounds to me like you because you have always done so much stuff that revolves around like southern heritage mm-hmm. and um, your roots Mm-hmm. But it sounds to me like you're actually, I don't know, I've been thinking a lot about, like, um, self-awareness mm-hmm. and about how, like, the more self-aware you become, the more you have to be responsible for all these different parts of you and the parts of you that have, and the things you've picked up along the way, because those are the things yeah. that compose you. Yeah, but, I mean, it's also owning the good and the bad in that. And totally. Like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, that was kind of the point where I got. I, I got to this point where I was like, I I was completely not self-aware. I didn't know, like, I didn't know where the line was between, you know, Travis Milton in front of a camera talking about, you know, old school corn recipes or Travis Milton sitting down and talking to a friend because it, it just, I had, to, I, I, had to, I had to be that, that show person so yeah. often um, that I just kind of got lost in it all and, uh but yeah, I mean, it, it's it's so much more freeing being able to cook like, and I've said it before, like just about Appalachian food, about you know how it feels true and real to me, and it's what's in my heart. But you know, there's other stuff too. It's like I like Lucky Charms, but I still want some Golden Grahams sometimes. <laughs> I mean, isn't that authenticity in reality? Well, it's being authentic to yourself. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a little more. And I, and I think when you, I think when you when you can do that, you're you're a much better artist. You're a much better business owner. You're much more cognizant of your your employees and who they are and what they need. Uh, you just get to a, a, I mean, it's it's cheesy, but I mean, just it's you just get to a good spot. Like if you can do it, if you can if you can kind of get through all that crap, you know, it, it's it's much better. I feel much more much more happy. Yeah. Yeah. Good. You were talking about your involvement with like uh, the food insecurity and stuff like that. What's? Um, I started getting involved with No Kid Hungry uh, in, in Virginia. Oddly enough, like I've been trying to to work with them for a while, and then bizarrely, uh, a good buddy of mine in Kentucky, uh, he was able to set up a dinner with them. And uh, at the dinner, the uh, the video that they're showing everyone, all the the, the prospective donors and the people that have, have already donated was about a elementary school in Bristol where I live 
Um, and, and it's one that I actually go and I work with on career days and things like that. Uh, and the, so the entire video was focused on that. And then everyone kind of like turns around and looks at me immediately when it's like Bristol, Bristol, Tennessee. And everybody's like, that's where you're from. And I'm like, yeah. And uh, then they kind of put two and two together that the amount of work that I was doing and what I was doing was the same stuff that they're doing. And uh, it really kind of uh, kind of aligns. So I'm doing a, a big event in February with them in D.C. Uh, get to go talk to Congress about food insecurity in the Appalachian region specifically. Uh, and then uh, then I get the I, I get forum with uh, the National Democratic uh, Governors Association afterwards. So it's it's pretty cool. Now I get to do politics. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's one of the one of the publications I write for is uh, 100 Days in Appalachia. Yeah, with Mike? And, yeah, and I do a lot about food policy with them. And yep. That's something that I think people just don't realize about Appalachia is that it's like... Well, food as a whole is... I mean, if, if, you, if, if you don't think that food is a political thing, you, you're, you've got blinders on. I mean, yeah. there's so much politics. If you get into just I mean, everything from food systems to, you know, economic impact and how, you know, there's so, so many intricacies to food in regards to, to politics and sociology and it's, it's all one thing and if, if you don't realize that you, you're definitely you've got some blinders on and it's something important to talk about yeah I don't think enough people do I mean is that that's got to be really hard especially being in the region where you are because being a liberal chef and all I, I am a, I, I am I'm typically a little little blue speck in a big big red sea yeah um, but to be honest at, at one of the things I've found in in the region you know it gets it gets kind of a bad rap as being uh, Trump Trump country at least the portion that I'm in uh, and uh, even the people that are conservative are kind of a different mold um, and they're willing to kind of work together um, without getting into the, the the humongous social portions of, of the issues with that. But uh, it's it's been better than I expected. But it is it is hard um, trying to, to do stuff and affect change and work work in any form of political arena uh, when you're in a place where most people think a little bit differently. But. Uh, I think being, I think everyone knowing that I'm from there and I come from there and I moved back because I care about it and I really am trying to to push not only economic development but you know social issues and, or addressing social issues and I think everybody respects that and they kind of let me do my thing and don't bother me. Yeah. And and are always willing to help, um, which is uh, not what I expected, but. Uh, but yeah, it's it's actually been a, a pleasant surprise, and not as bad as, as I thought it was going to be, or not as hard as I thought it was going to be. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a blessing. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think uh, I think it's very indicative of, of uh, kind of the uh, the uh, the Anthony Bourdain episode of No Reservations with with Mike Costello. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that was kind of his thought process going into it. He thought he was going into Trump country, and there were going to be these these hugely conservative souls and he found the complete opposite and fell in love with the place um, so it's I, I really enjoyed that episode for that that very reason and because my buddy Mike was in it so that didn't hurt <laughs> yeah yeah I mean it's really weird especially being from Appalachia seeing like 
Appalachia becoming such a trendy thing. I don't disagree with that. Um, um, yeah. What do you think? I mean, there's good points and bad points to it. It, uh, but it it all goes back to if if we're able to to take ownership of of our story, it gives us that that capability to help steer the narrative and steer you know how sustainable this trend is. Um, is it going to be 15 minutes? like mango salsa and then we're out and everybody's talking about oh Appalachia that's so 2010 um, but I, I think I think that it's 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 good and I think uh, I think we're going to be able to sustain it mainly because of the work that's been done in other regions of the south I think people are now starting to look at the south in a similar way of, of looking at Italy or Japan it's not a monoculture they look at it as, you know you look at Italy you know, Florence is completely different than Sicily Sicily's you know there's, there's different cuisines, there's different facets of it, and there's different reasons to it. And I think a lot of the work that the Southern Foodways Alliance has done, and writers like Ronnie Lundy and Don uh, Edgerton, uh, they did a lot of the, 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 the big heavy lifting to prop up the South. And, and now people are, are kind of understanding that Appalachia is its own portion of the South. And, and it's in and of itself a weird, even more diverse portion. I mean, it stretches all the way from New York to the tip of Georgia. West Virginian food is completely different than Southwestern Virginian food and Eastern North Carolina, you know, and it's all based off of, you know, who the immigrant population was there. Uh, you know, what the, where were you at in the mountains? You know, what level of seasonality were you dealing with? Uh, you know, there's so many factors, and, and I think that's one thing that's going to help kind of push the narrative and keep people interested and, and keep our place in the lexicon of kind of southern food at the very least, which, you know, nowadays is, is a huge touchstone of, of interest in tourism, and, you know, people drive all over the damn place to get a, a really good meal that's experiential, and I think that uh, we're now starting to own that, and places like Asheville are very important to it. Because you know you've got people like Fleer and you've got places like Bene that are are controlling or, or steering that narrative and telling people about the portions that they may not know about and it, it you know it just it's like going down the rabbit hole of Appalachia and you're seeing all of these new facets that a lot of people wouldn't see if you just look at it from a cursory level or read an article in you know the the Times or the Post. So I think that I think that's going to help us sustain it. You know, there's always going to be you know the the, the, the hipster dude in Brooklyn that that tries to throw out a, a hillbilly slushy or some you know I saw that in, in I believe it was Louisville somebody or Lexington Kentucky somebody had a uh, they did a, a Appalachian brunch and it was Mountain Dew and uh, it was it's kind of offensive but you know you're always going to have those people that that try to throw their little two cents in and and you know typically that inauthenticity that inauthenticity shows and people lose interest in that portion but the but the stuff that's got depth people tend to keep going on so I think I think that's what we're supplying and and Asheville's a huge portion of that that story (laughs) that was John talking with chef and Appalachian food legend Travis Milton of Nice Wonder Farm and Vineyard you're listening to the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour here on WPVM Asheville.
And you know a thing or two about raising kids. I know a thing or two. Yeah. Yeah. Being a being a single mom, like, was what was your go to stuff for for feeding your kid? 
cereal. Just kidding. <laughs> Definitely mac and cheese. Yeah. Yeah. And he loved mac and cheese. And we both loved it until we reached an age where it was no longer mac and cheese. You know, we, we needed another another food. And I think that that's just part of growing up together. You know, when you're a single mom and you have your kid and it's the way you bond is the way that you evolve through food. Yeah. So when I read Trisha Stern's Brownie Pie, it was such a personal essay f- for me because it took us to places I didn't expect. Yeah. And as a single mother, I really respect where she's coming from with with comfort food. And so uh, we have a theme of of mothers in this show. <laughs> it kind of is, isn't it? Mm-hmm. We do. <laughs> yeah. So shout out to all the moms out there. Yeah. Here's Jesse Shires reading Trisha Stern's story, Brownie Pie. Walking along a city sidewalk, I see a woman from my past. Fancy Nancy is what I called her in my head. She approaches, a little older, but visibly the same, wearing a smart fedora and black capri pants, still projecting her bulletproof demeanor. I drive an hour away for yoga class for a reason, anonymity. I'd rather be ignored in the big city by assholes I don't know than run into suburban assholes I do know. I look down at my phone to avoid eye contact. It's been years since we've seen each other. Our girls were often in the same classes growing up. Although we were never friends, Fancy Nancy and her kids were always around, like flies you can't seem to chase out of the kitchen. I can still see Nancy's silver minivan door glide open in the carpool line. Her perfectly coiffed daughters bounce out, their kids clean like they're right out of the box, their sensible bobs tucked neatly into headbands. Take out a stick of unsalted butter and bring to room temperature. Measure a half cup of flour, sliding a knife across the top to level it. Repeat with one cup of sugar. Blend together in a mixing bowl. Hey there, how are you? She says brightly as we approach. Oh, hey, Nancy, gosh, I haven't seen you in years. How have you been? We should chat sometime. I walk and wave, leaving no room for conversation. I get in my car toss aside my yoga mat and adjust my rearview mirror to watch her get into a shiny black sedan. Just like that, I am transported to 1999. The scent of popcorn fills the middle school gym. The coach's shrill whistle signals a pregame warm-up and multiple basketballs bounce on the squeaky floor as awkward boys scramble on the court. The foot-long video camera rests heavy on my shoulder as I prepare to record my middle daughter, Mallory, singing the national anthem before the game. I hand Julia, my youngest, change to buy popcorn, and zoom the camera lens on my oldest daughter, Meredith, waving green and silver pom-poms on the sidelines with the seventh grade cheerleaders. Then I focus on Mallory, microphone in hand, waiting to perform. My chest pumps with pride. In this moment, I have nailed the single mom challenge. I even had the right change for popcorn. But as I scan the audience of perfect, intact families, My neck prickles with fear for all the things that could go wrong as my girls put themselves out there in the public arena and risk judgment. Add one-fourth cup of cocoa, butter, how many eggs, and, and one teaspoon of vanilla. Beat at medium speed for three to four minutes. Spread evenly in a buttered nine inch pie plate. No, no salt or baking soda? I want someone to be able to make a brownie pie from reading your story, so don't leave anything out. 
Nancy stands next to me, her jeans stiff, her white blouse starched, her brunette bob smooth. Her shoes match her purse, lava orange with a brass designer insignia at the center. Oh, hey, she says, patting me on the arm like we're friends. I know you must be so proud of Mallory, she says, her voice dripping saccharin. I smile in response, and she continues. At least she won't be known around school as one of the saran wrap girls. Her eyes shift from Mallory, waiting in the center of the court, to Meredith on the sidelines. I peer through the viewfinder while my mind flashes through a Rolodex of conversations, scenes, and incidents from the past six months, trying to figure out what Nancy's talking about. Oh, say can you see? Mallory begins to sing, and I hope my trembling doesn't mar the recording of this moment because my mind is racing too fast to take it in. My flip chart of memories lands on Meredith's 13th birthday, her presents covered in plastic wrap, and the day I sorted laundry, pulling wads of plastic wrap and notes from the pockets of her jeans. I didn't stop to read them. I had to get to work. I had deadlines. I had kids to cart around. I don't have to wonder long. Nancy is still at my side and fills in the details a cheerleader slumber party, a forced initiation requiring Meredith and the other younger girls to French kiss each other, Meredith's suggestion they place saran wrap between their mouths, rumors that Meredith enjoyed it. My stomach flips. Nancy feels too close. I angle the camera on Meredith, standing still, pom-pom over her heart. I'm overcome with the desire to grab her hand and run. I want to take her someplace safe where she can stay a little girl a while longer. I want to tell her she is enough just the way she is. I want to warn her not to get sucked into this world. It will eat you alive. I want her to stay young and naive and live under my roof forever. And when forever is up, to be ready. How did I not know about this? Was I too busy? Did she try to tell me and I cut her off, ordering her to clean her room? How could I be so obtuse? My face says it all. Oh my, you didn't know. Nancy says. Bake at 325 for 35 to 40 minutes. Check for doneness by sticking the pie with the tip of a knife. If it comes out clean, it is ready. Cool 10 minutes. Back home, I tuck the girls in bed and head to the kitchen. There is only one thing to do. Bake a brownie pie. It is a tradition in my family in times of celebration or sorrow. I sip a glass of red and rush the process. The butter is not quite soft enough. The batter is hard to spread. The pie is forgiving. Thirty minutes pass like forever. I walk upstairs to Meredith's room, crawl onto her denim bedspread, and offer her a fork, the warm pie between us. We talk about the obvious, the goodness of warm chocolate. Her childhood dolls stare at us from the window seat. Dirty clothes litter the floor. Halfway through the pie, I ask Meredith about the slumber party. She talks. We both cry. When it happened, she didn't tell me because she knew I would get angry, that I would pound down parents' doors, that my actions would contribute to her humiliation. And she was right. Sensing the tension that simmered beneath our daily existence and the ease with which it could explode any minute, Meredith hid her pain from me because she feared my reaction. I thought I was a good mother. I fed my girls fresh vegetables. I sheltered them in a nice home. I told them to be strong, practice faith, study hard. But now it was clear. 
So many of my parenting moments had been fraught with mixed messages from lessons I was still learning myself. Being a single mom in suburbia trying to scrape enough together to keep my family fed had fueled my own insecurities about fitting in. I had grown so focused on making money and projecting a pulled together image that I did not pay attention to what was right under my nose. I finished the pie myself that night. I wish I could say the lessons I learned that day made middle school a breeze for my girls. I can say we survived, and I did start paying attention, not just to my daily conversations with my family, but with myself. Now that my girls are grown and on their own, I bake fewer brownie pies these days. But as I watch Nancy and her black sedan ease out into the busy noonday traffic, I think it might be a good afternoon for a pie. When I take the first gooey bite of chocolate, I taste the painful moments of my life, but also the pleasurable ones. I taste the touch of a tiny hand reaching for mine as we cross a street. I taste the struggles over prom dresses and the memories of curlers, crayons, and chores. I call Meredith. She tells me that she heard Nancy was battling bone cancer. I am shocked, feel guilty. I should have stopped to talk to her. Because of Nancy, I learned to pay more attention to my life. She upped my parenting skills. I am reminded by her illness that trouble is a variable in everyone's life. It finds us all at some point. Of course it would find Nancy too. Once again, she has taught me a life lesson. I take out a stick of butter and set it on the counter. I measure out the flour. I look up Nancy's address.
The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Founded in 1979 by the pioneering Mark Rosenstein and reimagined by Chef William Disson a decade ago, The Marketplace Restaurant is celebrating its 40th anniversary this year. Asheville's original farm stable restaurant, The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region and our farmers have to offer. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is a production of Dirty Spoon Media, copyright 2019. All of the text from our stories is available on our website, dirty-spoon.com. There you can also catch up on past episodes as well as subscribe to the show and help us keep going through our Patreon. The incredible artwork on that website is by Katrin Doza, Corinne Pease, Kelly Minear, Garnett Fisher, Paul Choi, and Marianne Papineau. Music in this episode by Sun Kill Moon, The New Pornographers, Salt, John Moreland, Bedouin, Angel Olsen, Ludwig van Beethoven, Tourist, Atle Ovarsen, John Bryan, Keith Kenneff, and Goldman. Catherine Campbell is our editor-at-large, sources our stories, and handles our website and marketing. Jonathan Ammons is our editor-in-chief, handles the music selection, production, recording, audio editing, and writes some of the original music. Tune in next month for more stories, conversations, and music from the people who shape what we consume right here on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour from 103.7 WPVMLP Asheville.